0: Hey guys, Monopatit Foodcast, and I am Adam Rappaport. And oh my God, it's 2019. So if it's a new year, then we're probably all thinking about, you know, a post-holiday reset, trying to eat more healthfully. But you know what's better than a diet? Or thinking about quote-unquote eating healthy but not actually doing it. You know what's better? The healthiest feel-good food plan. This is our second year rolling out the two-week-long program on our healthiest website at behealthiest.com. It comprises amazing recipes that don't omit anything, but they'll just make you feel, you know, really, really good. Uh, We've got 10 dinners, plus a dessert, plus a big batch lunch strategy and shopping lists. Uh, To find it all and cook along with us, Go to Healthyish, again, at BeHealthish.com, and to get you all fired up, uh, this week, Healthyish editor Amanda Shapiro is chatting with Andy Baraghani and Chris Morocco, who works to develop all of these recipes. Uh, and then, after that, associate editor Hilary Cadigan chats with Kerry Brody and Alex Harris of Emma's Torch, a restaurant in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, that is also the site of a culinary job training program for refugees in New York City. All right, let's do this thing. Here is Amanda, Andy, and Chris.
1: Hey, guys. Hey. Hi. So, um, as the Healthiest Food Editors, you guys have created, again, what we call the... uh, the Super Bowl of Healthy-ish, which is the <laughs> Feel Good Food Plan, uh, live starting today, um, January second, twenty nineteen. Here we are. So I want to I want to talk to you guys about um, some of the amazing recipes that you created for this. Um, we have. 10 dinner recipes that we'll be cooking through for the next two weeks. Um, tonight is actually the the very first recipe. Um, so would love to hear about that. Chris, what's up first?
2: So the first one we have is, let me just double check our most recent recipe name for this, uh, salmon and broccolini with citrus chili sauce. This kind of hinges around this super flavorful, Um, incredibly aromatic sauce that is kind of like a riff on yuzu kosho, but instead of being like a really tight paste, it's kind of loosened into this kind of drapey, beautiful, kind of verdant green. Uh, sauce that um, has a base of jalapeno chilies with some seeds added. If you're into that for a little bit of heat, garlic, kind of all that gets mashed to a bit of a paste on a cutting board. Or if you're not feeling that, you can always use your mortar and pestle, Andy. Yeah, (laughs) Mortar and pestle fans here. Yeah. Or or you can use a blender, you know, as well. Um, But so once you have that kind of mashed to a paste, you combine it with a little grapefruit zest, olive oil, touch of honey, just for a little bit of Um, you know, sort of balance. Um, And right before you are ready to use it, you add in some of the um, grapefruit juice and rice wine vinegar.
1: And what's it getting put on? Tell me about our our salmon So we
2: kind of just have like an easy, you know, seared um, salmon filet that's like, you know, delicious. But like, you know, we didn't add any bells or whistles to that just because like we felt like we really wanted people's heavy lift to just be kind of making the dressing, which kind of brings the whole dish together. But the other element in there is we have kind of a charred broccolini. And, you know, broccolini, it's one of those vegetables that for the longest time, I was kind of like, what are you? Like, what are you really? (laughs) broccolini oh it's Um, so
1: good i love it oh
2: god i mean it it is so good but I, I don't know I really for me I found it really needed an edge like it needed to be like Friday night broccolini not like Tuesday broccolini it's, so
1: it's no broccoli Rob no,
2: no no broccoli Rob is like you know spicy Robust. peppery in your face broccolini it's like it's very mild but what I found kind of gave it that like that little bit of edge was giving it a pretty hard sear and just a you know very modest amount of olive oil getting a little bit of the char like a little bit of char on the florets really kind of adds this depth and this contrast so it's not just kind of like you know the broccolini you thought you knew um it's the broccoli you want to get to know
1: and how are we making the salmon or or is this a um, oven situation or are we getting
2: a crispy skin we're we're kind of getting some crispy skin you know i think it depends like you know we're not calling for really big pieces of salmon here so you know you can you can get the skin crispy or you can more kind of like cook the the flesh side you know to a kind of like brown like kind of crispy exterior um, you know, point being, yeah, we're doing it in a skillet on the stovetop just because we felt like the dressing takes a little bit of time to bring together and, um, a slow roast salmon, you know, is, is wonderful. Um, you know, we did one last year, which was really great, but just wanted to change it up this year. And it's a little bit faster just to kind of do it on the stove top, um, since you're doing the broccolini that way anyway. Um, and then the dish kind of gets finished with, um, just a little bit of raw endive just for a little bright crunch and kind mm-hmm. of a uh, contrast.
1: Great, yeah, and maybe we should just back up a little and um, talk about our inspiration for the recipes this year overall. So um, I know that there's a little less emphasis on meat this year, we do have um, some fish, Two fish dishes, I think, and is it just one chicken dish? One chicken dish, yeah. and everything else is vegetarian. Uh, and that was kind of just where you guys were feeling this year, and kind of where we felt like we were moving toward, you know, as as eaters. What else? What else kind of makes this this year's plan unique?
3: Well, I think we both spoke. Uh, I mean, we share a station together, Station Three. We uh, talk a lot. Never forget, <laughs> we talk a lot, <laughs> and I think we just both were not eating as much meat, nor were we cooking as
2: much meat so yeah uh, I just wasn't craving it as much and the feedback we felt like from last year too was like people were really into the dishes and in the recipes and just the the approach and the idea and everything but I feel like if there was one question we got over and over, it was, how do I make this vegetarian? How do I make this vegetarian, you know? And there were certain things that were kind of, you know, oh, okay, you know, maybe like the, sort of like the pork and, you know, kind of like turmeric, little like mini curry kind of thing, like, yeah, maybe you could use some like tofu crumbles or whatever in there, but then, you know, things like the crispy chicken thighs with harissa and and fennel 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 and all that, it was like, yeah, sorry, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) like big planks of tofu aren't just gonna be a one-to-one, and it's not the kind of, you know, alt you feel comfortable suggesting over Instagram, you know, yeah. at like 10 p.m., you know. We not really listened to
1: all of your guys' comments. We really heard, we heard the people, and we uh, wanted to respond.
2: Yeah. It, it's really hard to also put certain kind of cuts of meat and things, like, into, like, the kind of feel-good food plan context, like – you know, I don't know, just, like, how do you how do you talk about, like, steak in the context of, like, a healthy weeknight dinner, you know, like, in this kind of January, you want to, like, be, you know, eating a little bit clean? Um, it just, I don't know, this year we weren't feeling it. Maybe we'll go back to it next yeah,
3: year. Yeah, and I think, like, I mean, emphasis on not using as much meat, but also I think, like, really clean flavors and just showcasing the vegetables for themselves and adding maybe a little bit of spice or heat here and there. But you know i think i've said this to you a minute it's like when people are making these recipes like I mean, I, don't know. I kind of want them to lose a pound or two as well. Like it's great <laughs> if you feel nourished, but also like it should be like, this is, they feel good for plan. You're should, on a plan. Mind, body, and soul. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, so let's go to one of the, one of the vegetarian dishes um, in the plan that I think people are gonna be really psyched on. Um, it's a spicy mushroom larb. And mm-hmm. so larb is something, um, if you're not familiar, usually made with- Ground meat. Ground meat of, of any kind. Um, but this year, Andy developed one um, made with mushrooms, mm-hmm. and I swear to God, it tastes like there's meat in it. And I need to know <laughs> the secret behind this dish. I haven't cooked this one yet myself, so um, Andy, will you just walk us through how this one makes that magic happen?
3: Yeah, I, I swear. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like I thought of this recipe. I don't know between like one and three in the morning when I was watching whatever on YouTube, and then I feel like I messaged you the next day or something, or emailed you or slacked you, and. I was like, we should do a mushroom larb. And then eventually ended up in the feel-good food plan. Um, and really, this I don't feel like this recipe is that different from a lot of other larb recipes you'll see, except there's no meat. The big thing is you're using mushrooms, and in this case you're using shiitake mushrooms. And you just kind of finely chop them. Uh, if they're small, you could just quarter them, but about like half-inch pieces. And then you give them like a... Uh, You cook them hard in a skillet uh, with some oil until they kind of become like golden brown and really crispy. Um, And
1: that's the secret to getting a lot of flavor out of them, right, is getting them brown enough. So you got to make sure you take them far enough.
3: Far enough, brown enough, and also you you don't want to shake them, especially in the beginning. You want them to kind of release their water uh, and then just so they can get crisp around the edges. And then once you get to the mushrooms in a good place, that's when you kind of add your aromatics. And it happens really, really quickly. That's why you should have all the ingredients kind of ready to go, mise en place out. Um, And then once the mushrooms are brown, you add your grated garlic, uh, grated ginger, and a lot of thinly sliced scallions. And then that kind of comes together in a few minutes. And then off heat, you add, uh, you finish it with fish sauce, peanuts, uh, a lot of mint, Uh, chilies and it just ends up being this like just so much fun in your mouth with so much texture and funk and a lot of heat and I serve it with just uh, green cabbage. I love the contrast and I think it kind of kind of mellows the heat out a bit. Uh, A bowl of rice would be great as well and I just kind of top it with more peanuts and serve it with some lime and uh, it comes together really quickly and it's definitely become one of my favorite dishes that I've developed recently.
1: Yeah, and I know people are gonna ask, but um, if you're a strict vegetarian, can you leave out the fish sauce?
3: Um, Yeah, I can't really think of a substitute for fish sauce. Or It's such a specific and unique uh, ingredient that I love, I know Chris loves, but um, of course, you could leave it out and make it fully vegetarian.
1: Add a little extra salt, maybe. Add a
3: little bit of extra salt, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> All right, great. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of dinner recipes we can talk through. I think um, one that I'm particularly uh, excited about, and I want other people to be excited about too, is a recipe that sounds intimidating but really isn't. Um, it's we called it easy flatbread with cauliflower and tofu, and we called it easy flatbread for a reason because if you see the word bread and you freak out and run the other direction like I usually do, um, you know this is not this is not that kind of bread. This is a bread that you can. Make make literally in 15 or 20 minutes uh, using ingredients you already have right on your stovetop. Um, Chris, this is your recipe, so maybe tell us a little bit more about how this one comes together.
2: Yeah. So obviously, I mean, if somebody is just hell bent on buying, you know, store-bought pita or naan or whatever, I mean, you know, there's nothing to stop you, at least, you know, not in this recipe. Um, But if you, you know, I think like this is, these are the easiest flatbreads, you know, I've ever seen. And what's so cool about them is they they do not use yeast. Um, They use, yogurt basically like just regular yogurt not greek yogurt as the liquid in the dough Um, so it's a combination of um, equal parts whole wheat and regular all-purpose flour a touch of baking powder which gives you a little bit of lift um, and salt so you just mix that with yogurt and then you knead it into a you know kind of a supple dough just in about a minute let it rest about 15 minutes um, then divide it and roll it out and then uh cook it in a dry you know kind of cast iron skillet something kind of heavy that you know you won't mind a little bit of like char you know forming on um and this is all you know kind of thanks to josh mcfadden his approach um to making like a very similar flatbread um in one of our august issues years ago where he kind of did this cool what was it it was like a it was a falafel spiced tomato tomato flatbread um and you know this is one of those things that like it almost doesn't make sense when you hear about how it works you know it sh- doesn't really sound like it should work but um we noticed one of our kind of star food stylists, rebecca jerkovich uses this recipe to make flatbreads whenever she kind of needs a flatbread in an, a shot you know anytime like you know she just needs like a kind of go-to recipe she makes these because they're so easy mm-hmm. um so I've seen these kind of over the years, you know, so they've always kind of been in the back of my mind. And we just updated the recipe, um, took out the sugar, added some whole grain flour, made it just a touch more streamlined so that you can, you know, kind of make a couple of these super easily.
1: And how are we, how are we serving them uh, for the plan?
2: We're, um, we have this kind of cauliflower and tofu dish that's going with it. Um, it's kind of based on like a cauliflower sobzi. So it's cauliflower that's kind of given a bit of a, a sear in some ghee. Um, You could use oil as well if you wanted to, Um, but that kind of initial, like a little bit of char, a little bit of sear on the cauliflower kind of develops the flavor in such a way that it doesn't really get that kind of cabbagey, sad cauliflower thing kind of like later on when you add a little liquid and kind of braise it out to tenderness. So it's cauliflower, red onion, um, it's turmeric, ginger, um, you know, and uh, a little bit of golden raisin for a touch of sweetness. And then like some toasted sliced almonds. Um, it's a really simple dish, you know, and to Andy's point, you know, it's, it's, it, feels pretty clean, you know, we're using ghee a little bit, you know, in this, in these recipes, like kind of strategically, just because of just that full on, you know, kind of, um, you know, wonderful kind of like buttery flavor it has, but, you know, it could be oil and um, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, kind of delicious and it's going to fill you up, especially if you make those flatbreads, but, um, you know, but, but it's not going to weigh you down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andy, favorite recipe in the feel-good food plan that oh, you developed? That I developed?
2: Yeah. Um, I
3: love the mm, – I don't know. It's m- Pick the soup. Okay, I'll pick the <laughs> soup. I do love the soup. The soup. The su- well, the soup is actually – so it, the soup,
2: we're calling it – Um, Can I just say, like, Andy had, like, two recipes kind of come, like, out of the gate, basically fully formed, kind (laughs) of dropped on the table and was just sort of, like, boom, (laughs) like, gives you that, like, Andy look, like, what? Yeah, I didn't think so. (laughs) And it was, you know, the soup and the the larb. And I feel like, you know, other recipes, look, you know, they take time to evolve. The idea changes, something happens, you know, but these two were just kind of, like, I think, like, there was a clarity of, like, your idea that you brought and, like, you know, and they're wonderful. And And the
1: rest of them came in the day well, before they I'd were sa- due. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I'd say those
2: two.
3: I, I the, the fish with the with the curry crisp I love too. Let's something talk about, about that, that for a
1: sec. What what's the curry crisp?
3: So it was something that came about we've been obsessed with the chili crisp that uh Chris made for healthy ish a few months ago. Yeah, a while ago. It's now. just this magical thing of like Chilies and garlic and shallots and star anise and I I don't even know what else black pepper, cayenne pepper,
2: Yeah, there's like cinnamon, you know. Cinnamon. Yeah, just like a lot of chili flakes and those warm spices,
3: intense, so so flavorful chili oil that we used to use on everything. So I kind of wanted to do something really quick, very different from that, which was just like a a curry chili crisp, where I wasn't using, um, uh, I think. In your recipe, to use a neutral oil like vegetable oil. Yeah. So I wanted to use ghee, and basically, I'm cooking sliced garlic and ghee until they begin to crisp, and then um, I add uh, chili, or excuse me, curry powder off heat. And that could be kind of whatever curry powder. I use Vaduvan because I love it, but whatever mild uh, curry powder uh, you can use, you could use chaat masala. I think that'd be actually really delicious. And then you add black pepper to it, uh, and then this kind of becomes this like, Really magical curry, ghee, garlicky uh, sauce that you just dress over hake or cod or halibut, any kind of white fish that you like.
1: It's a really intensely flavorful sauce for a pretty mild fish, which I think is yes. what that fish needs. Exactly. Um, and it works and it comes together a lot faster, right, than the crisp, than the chili crisp does. It's a, exactly. it's a weeknight version.
3: Only in a few minutes in a small skillet. Um, and then so once you have, you have it like this white fish that's covered in this deep golden hue of ghee and curry powder and garlic. I forgot there's also black mustard seeds. And then it kind of the whole dish comes back to life with this really crunchy onion and celery and celery leaf salad that is just those three ingredients with a lot of lemon juice. Uh, there's no oil on it. It just like, you want like this bright. Acidic uh, salad that goes on on this fish.
1: Yeah, I think that there's um, a really great template that you guys developed for a lot of these recipes that I think is a great thing for people to have in general when they're thinking about cooking healthier, cooking at all, really. But just having a cooked element, a raw element, and a sauce kind of as your bases, because especially in the winter, you can get really Kind of bogged down in like heavier dishes, like you know, long cooking stews, braises, things like that. But just a little bit of brightness in a in you know a raw salad on top, whether it's the fennel or the endive, um, and then you know if it's a cooked dish and having like that really bright spicy sauce on it too. Um, I think we've used that model kind of a few times in these recipes, and it seems to work really well if you want to get all of that into one into one dinner. Mm-hmm.
2: For sure, yeah, I mean, yeah, like a flavorful oil or ghee or whatever and a toasty allium like, will get you it a does long, so much. long way. Mm-hmm.
3: With the soup, uh, we're calling it Feel Better Chicken and Sweet Potato Soup. This is something that I've been making for a while, well over, I don't even know, well over <laughs> two years, I think. Uh, and let's just be honest, I made this when I was sick or I uh, drank too much or done too many drugs in
2: the past, or whatever. <laughs> Uh, and so, Andy's really young, so to him, two years is a really long time. I've, I've Back in his younger years, uh, years yes. when he
1: uh, <laughs> needed a hangover So here.
3: Um, I needed to come and make a dish that I didn't want to do takeout, and uh, I wanted chicken soup of sorts. So uh, it's a recipe that just one pot, and uh, it's a chicken soup that doesn't need any chicken stock. Uh, and the way it comes together is... Um, using uh, boneless, skinless chicken thighs. And I use jasmine rice, but you could use short grain rice. Um, And then thinly sliced ginger, thinly sliced garlic, and then about six cups of cold water. You bring that to a simmer, and you cook that until the chicken is like almost done halfway through, that takes like 10 minutes. And then you add sweet potatoes. I just use small sweet potatoes that are cut into rounds with the peel so they stay intact.
1: So just to back up, we're we're making this chicken stock basically with water, so we're not using store-bought stock, and not at all. so uh, why why don't we need a store-bought stock, and 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 what's the what's the purpose of cooking the chicken right in the water?
3: I mean, I rarely use stock in recipes, sometimes, but in general, most of the stock that you tend to buy or find, it's like a little too sweet uh, from the carrots, or it tastes too much like onions. And with this, uh, again, it's kind of going back to just like having a really clean flavor, and the Boneless, skinless chicken thighs, like they ha- have some fat on them, so that's going to render out. Uh, and th- you add a lot of thinly sliced ginger and garlic, and that adds so much flavor to the stock. Uh, and then the starch from the rice, like, slightly thickens it, not to the full. It, it's not necessarily congee, it's not as thick as congee, but you do get this kind of uh, velvety consistency from it. Um, so you, n- there's no need for stock, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but once it gets to a good point where the chicken is almost done, I add sweet potatoes. Uh, and they end up cooking in, this, in the broth and they become just tender. Uh, and then I shred the chickens up, I pull them from the pot, shred them, add them back, finish with a bit of soy sauce and salt, and then just top it with a lot of cilantro um, stems and leaves and a lot of lemon juice to the point where like you can taste the lemon and black pepper Mm. all comes together in one pot no sauteing so (laughs) good love that dish
1: yeah Um, okay so before we have to go I just want to remind everybody that the feel good food plan is 10 dinner recipes but we also have a pretty amazing and ingenious, I would say, um, lunch strategy for you. So if you're the kind of person who kind of wants to start it off, start off 2019, you know, not buying your lunch so much, um, not packing the same sandwich every day, but also doesn't want, doesn't really like the idea of like the meal prep where you end up with like six Tupperwares full of the same three ingredients that you eat every day until you don't and then they (laughs) wilt and die in your fridge. That's me. so this this meal plan is this meal prep plan is for those people um and and chris developed it uh Chris, will you walk us through kind of the the components of the lunch plan this year and how people can kind of do this thing on for two hours on Sunday and end up with like a different meal every day of the week?
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, rather than kind of looking at your meal plan as like, you know, we need two hours from you, but like you're going to create your six Tupperwares of like delight, you know, we kind of approached it more from like, what are like, what are the bare bones kind of essentials that can get you, you know, the kind of widest range of, um, you know, kind of delicious dishes that are super easy to assemble and, you know, kind of or make for yourself on a weekday. Um, So it kind of all starts with a really amazing pot of chickpeas that our wonderful friend Mina Stone kind of showed us how to make in the style of her um, Greek grandmother. Um, Very simple, like, um, you know, it's just everything kind of gets dumped in a pot. Um, Onion, garlic, olive oil, um, a pound of Uh, chickpeas you know soaked ideally if you don't soak them it'll just take a little bit longer Um, and a couple quarts of water and then that just comes up and simmers until the chickpeas are tender and the thing that that gets you that a canned chickpea doesn't is not only are the chickpeas themselves more delicious you know have better texture and flavor inside and out but it's the outside, it's the liquid that it gets you is so um, flavorful. And chickpeas, you know, they have that like that kind of aquafaba, you know, that kind of crazy ability to, um, you know, bring like a, a richness of mouthfeel, um, you know, to that that broth. So
1: and you really got to use the dried chickpeas for this because that that broth really becomes the thing that you're using a lot in your lunches for the week, right? right? Yeah.
2: So um, you know, so a- additional things that. Like if people, you know, have time, like we'd love for them to roast a tray of vegetables, including some whole sweet potatoes. Andy and I have a thing for sweet, sweet potatoes, potatoes and oh, yeah. chickpeas. Let's just get that out of the way. Big like, this year. It, they're big. They're in they, there. <laughs> we we snuck them in all kinds of places. <laughs> um, but they really—they're so good for you, and they offer you know so much more um, nutritionally and flavor-wise than a regular potato. And they keep you um, full
1: when you're eating less meat.
2: For sure. sure. So, like a roasted uh, tray of vegetables, it can be cauliflower, broccoli, sweet potatoes, you know, what have you. Um, and then, like, just some hard boiled eggs. Honestly, you can go so far on having like a couple of hard boiled eggs. Um, and then, additional elements that, like, you know, if if you have the wherewithal, we would strongly encourage you to do one of our favorite Sunday sauces, such as our tahini ranch dressing. Um, it's the kind of dressing that's just like, it's so nice if you can do it on the Sunday before the week, just because it involves, you know, pulling out your blender and, you know, making sure you have kind of garlic and onion powder and just a couple basic things. But the tahini ranch just has like really amazing flavor and you will be so happy all through the week that you have it. So now that you have like, you know, all or some of those elements, in the week, you know, we have sort of suggestions for how you can turn those chickpeas into a really great, you know, kind of easy to assemble um, salad. Um, we did a video, you know, kind of like working with like some of those chickpeas to make like a chickpea hard boiled egg, kind of like loose, like riff on a chopped salad and use that tahini ranch as our dressing, which is so good. Um, we do a smashed chickpea salad sandwich, just using yogurt, lemon, um, little celery capers to kind of turn into like a, you know, kind of a a a coarse mash that you can kind of assemble and make yourself like sandwiches with through the week. Um, We have a miso chickpea soup that really relies on like that liquid in your homemade chickpeas, Um, you know, just stirring a little bit of, uh, you know, dissolving a little bit of miso into that liquid. It's, it's literally good enough to be your soup. Like, you know, so when you go to make yourself, you know, make in quotes, your, you know, your soup that the morning that you want to eat it, all you really need to do is just put some miso into some of those chickpeas and broth. Like maybe throw in a handful of raw kale and pack yourself like one of those eggs. And you can just heat that soup up. And it, it is soup. You didn't make soup, but you just sort of assembled soup. And it's pretty rare to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing.
2: There's one other I'm forgetting. There's a fourth. But oh, are kind of like, oh, you know, using the chickpeas to make like kind of a hummus, which then you can form the base of sort of like a metze plate or with your roasted um, vegetables, with your roasted vegetables, you know, just it packs well, it can last for five days. I make hummus like most weekends at home. Um, and it really gets us through the week. It's like that flavorful schmear at the bottom of whatever that turns whatever into a pretty decent lunch.
1: Cool. And you can get all these recipes, and you can get the entire lunch strategy um, on BeHealthyish.com. We'll be cooking through the recipes for the next two weeks. Everyone on staff is involved. It's been really fun. So we hope you guys can uh, cook along with us and make sure to, to post and tag us too so we can see what you're doing. Reach out with any questions you have. Oh, and before we go, also shout out to our food editor, Molly Baz, who developed the amazing dessert recipe because, yes, you totally should be eating dessert during this time, not off limits. uh, She created this incredible chocolate chocolate cashew chia parfait. A lot of C's in there. Um, it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful, but it's literally a mouthful. Um, and you can make a big batch again on a Sunday or on the weekend, anytime, and scoop yourself out a little bit of the, um, of the chia served with a little bit of maple yogurt, that's what makes the parfait. I would eat it for breakfast. It's the kind of dessert that you can feel, um, you know, totally great about eating pretty much any time a day, anytime you want like a little bit of a sweet sweet snack. snacks. So, um,
2: I yeah. actually did eat it for breakfast this morning. <laughs> it was delightful with some <laughs> regular yogurt, almond butter, a little sprinkle of salt. Mm. There you go. Cool.
0: Thanks, Amanda. Thank
1: Thanks, you. guys.
0: All right. Thank you to Amanda, Andy, and Chris. You can cook the Feel Good Food Plan along with us. Just make sure to hashtag all your photos, hashtag Feel Good Food Plan, or tag healthy-ish so we can see what you're up to. Uh, and now, Here is Hillary with Carrie Brody and Alex Harris. Alex
4: and Carrie. So excited to have you guys here. I've eaten at Emma's Torch a few times now, and I'm obsessed with your black-eyed pea hummus. And I've chatted with a few of your graduates for the magazine, so it's cool to get a chance to have you guys here and kind of take us all the way back to the beginning and find out more about the origins of the project and what you guys have been up to since. So I guess let's start um, with you, Carrie. I know this is kind of your brainchild. Take me back to like childhood. (laughs) What'd you want to be when you were a kid?
5: (laughs) Thank you so much. It's actually the second time I've been asked that this week. scary answers. I'm pretty sure Minnie Mouse was very high on my career choices, but uh, I grew up cooking with my mother and my grandmother. Every Friday night was an opportunity to have a dinner party with challahs for our Shabbat table. And so for me, cooking was always that safe space, that space that I went to when I was stressed, when I wanted to feel some element of control, and when I wanted to bond with my family. I grew up thinking I was going to work in politics and began my career uh, in Washington, D.C. Most recently I was at the Human Rights Campaign, but as much as I loved the work I was doing and loved the people I was working with, I found that my most rewarding part of my week every week was actually going and volunteering at this homeless shelter that was on my walk to work and talking to the women there about the food that inspired them, the memories that they had with their mothers and grandmothers. And for a long time, I had this crazy idea that somebody should start this thing as a child of immigrants, as somebody who is acutely aware of what it looks like when when families aren't let in. I really thought this was a great idea and that somebody should do it and I could go work for them. And I am very fortunate to have a long-suffering husband who eventually turned to me and said, who are you waiting for? And so I spent a lot of time researching and trying to find a reason not to do this and eventually realized that there's no reason not to and that... I'd want to give it a shot. So I ended up leaving my job, moving to New York, going to culinary school, and meeting some really magical people along the
4: way who made this whole this whole project possible. One of those being Alex. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about your sort of origin story? Uh,
6: my origin story, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I didn't have a huge cooking family. I mean, you know, my mother did all of the cooking during the week, you know, normal dinners and breakfasts and things like that. It was really, when I look back on it, it was really the times that we had family gatherings that kind of drew me to food. My father cooking in the backyard with my uncle, you know, on the grill um, or making what we call chopped barbecue, which would be pork shoulder in the oven. My aunt making uh, desserts big cakes and and cobblers and things like that um, for family gatherings that's kind of what drew me into food and kind of put it in the back of my mind that maybe this is something that i want to do when i when i get older my first path led me to something totally different and then i just got to a point in my career in which i said you know i think it's time for a change and uh, I should jump into cooking, you know, and the only way for me to do things is with, you know, both feet and just to leave the last thing behind and move on into the next.
4: And what was your sort of start in restaurants?
6: The first restaurant that I worked at was a small uh, French place. Um, My first love was French culture and French food. And so I kind of worked at a a bunch of different French places for a while before uh, coming to the city.
4: How did you guys connect?
5: New York is a really special, magical place. And I say that as somebody who was kicking and screaming about how I didn't want to move to New York and I wouldn't be able to manage it and it's just too much for me. And what I realized when I was starting the organization is that you just have to chase down every lead. Anybody who wants to meet with you, the answer is yes and. It's like the most elaborate game of improv ever. (laughs) And so one of those weird, amazing connections was that somebody reached out to me about setting up a meeting, and she brought her colleague, the incredible Kim Lerner, who became a really close friend, a volunteer with the organization, and then helped us open our new restaurant. And so throughout that, we were looking for somebody who could blend a passion for food, an understanding of education, and somebody was just gonna dive in and find this as a calling. And so it took a little while and Kim kept on telling me, you have to meet my friend Alex. And so then I met her friend Alex, begged him to come work with us. And now I'm very fortunate to say that Kim's friend Alex is, is my friend Alex. And really it's, it's such a joy to watch him in the kitchen with all of our students.
4: Had you ever had any experience, Alex, teaching?
6: So I've, I've had a couple of different experiences teaching uh, in my life. Not teaching cooking. Um, But ultimately using those experiences to help me formulate the way that I would like to uh, Teach this program.
4: How do you start off that process when you're like, okay? I might be working with someone who has been cooking in their home kitchen But has never done this professionally before or maybe they have you're teaching a pretty wide range of skill sets So like what's step one when it comes to that
6: brutal honesty is step (laughs) one working in you know, this industry for a while, you see a lot of different things. It takes time to understand what it is you're in for. So when I say brutal honesty, that's the first couple of moments when the students step in the kitchen. Okay, this is what the industry is. Does this still sound like something that you want to do? Okay, let me continue to explain further. (laughs) So that you understand that I'm not joking about, you know, my explanation of what the industry is. And then, you know, we continue on from there. Who you are as an entry-level cook, who I am as a chef, and any um, relationship between two different people has a set of expectations.
4: And have you had, like, any one drop out the second you have that brutally honest conversation with them or is it generally like all right we're gonna stick around so
6: it's not in that moment (laughs) so you know like i said yes we have had some people leave it's taken exactly that it's taken a little bit of time for them to have some different experiences and to say okay well maybe this isn't for me
4: and carrie for you i mean you're coming from this public policy background and um, had you had any experience in kitchens before or with the food industry or was it just kind of like all right I'm doing this project and now I'm throw myself into this
5: a mix of both my only professional food related job was I scooped ice cream the summer before college I was not particularly good at that I had also worked in a kibbutz in Israel similarly not the star employee in those kitchens (laughs) and so even throughout culinary school it was really exciting and actually really humbling to realize that at that point I had a masters, I had gone to college, I was a really kind of type A student and recognizing that I had to work harder, I had to really practice on those pounds and pounds and pounds of, t- of potatoes, I had to work harder on my externship and I think that really helped set me up for success with this work and something I've always wanted to make sure of is that I'm not asking anybody to do something that I wouldn't do. I know what it is to wake up at four in the morning to go to work on your bakery shift and to realize that actually lifting that huge pound bag of flour is really heavy, but I also realized the beauty of the industry, and so while I, I kind of gave myself a crash course and sometimes I wonder if maybe I could have gone in it for longer and learned more, I've been lucky to surround myself with people who have that background in the industry, who know, know what the experience is like and can give our students a real glimpse of what, what they're in for, both the triumphs and, and the difficulties.
4: mm mm-hmm. yeah. And and you said also that you have some personal experience with your parents being immigrants or from South Africa. Can you talk about that a little bit and how did, were those stories that you had heard growing up? And was that always something that you kind of wanted to address when you got older? I grew up with a really interesting background
5: in that my parents were, were immigrants from South Africa and they came here in the 80s. But before that, um, my family was all refugees from Lithuania and South African Jews usually have that as a background because it was one of the last places to lef- let Jews in during the Holocaust. And so I grew up with an understanding of what it means to be to be a refugee, to be fleeing something, to have to start over. And my grandparents and my parents were always really adamant about understanding what it is to be in a society that is unjust, both in terms of what they fled their ancestors fled in Lithuania, but also what they saw in South Africa and how important it is to take that understanding of victimhood, to take that understanding of what it means to escape a hardship and to apply it into our life's
4: work. Why did this feel like the moment to start this organization?
5: When I was figuring out if this organization had legs, if it was possible, it was in the early part of 2016, so definitely before the last election, but it was really catalyzed by a renewed conversation about refugees. Because of my work at the Human Rights Campaign in particular, I was looking at people who were fleeing because of who they were and who they loved. I think at every moment, we have the opportunity to do a tremendous amount of good. And in as much as a lot of things that have happened in the news since have been difficult, and have presented new challenges to our students and to our community. What's been really inspiring to me is seeing the outpouring of help and support. When something happens in the news, I suddenly have an inbox full of people asking, how can I volunteer? How can I do more? How can we show that what we stand for as a country and what we believe in is is those words on the Statue of Liberty that we're named after, that give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. And so while that silver lining sometimes can seem really thin, uh, it's really inspiring, and we're really grateful for that outpouring of support.
4: Mm-hmm. And take me back, I guess, for a minute, because I think, you know, especially right now, a lot of us are wanting to help, but the wanting and the actually doing is, you know, there's a big divide between that and whether we have the time to do it and whether we're willing what we're willing to give up to do that. Um, so if you kind of talk to me about, you know, how you took this idea from just an idea to a reality. It was quite a roller coaster,
5: (laughs) but an exciting one. I started out by doing all the research I could. I am very fortunate in that my parents are exceptionally supportive, but also very demanding. So when I told my dad I had this idea, his response was, rightfully so, that's nice, but why you? And until you can answer why you, why you know all of the answers to these questions, you have no business going out and doing this and he was right and i'm grateful every day that he forced me to really ask those tough questions and so i went out and i spoke to the experts i asked you know does is this what the world needs or should i be putting my effort somewhere else should i be doing something else should i be working on something else does this program have merit and value and i was fortunate in discovering that yes this was a this was a gap this was something that was going to help to solve a problem of employment for newcomers to this country but also an employment gap in the restaurant industry what I will say, though, to your question, is that not everybody has to go out and found a new organization. I think sometimes we forget that in our everyday interactions, we have the capacity to do a tremendous amount of good. So I remember I was at one protest. It might have been the Women's March or something. And somebody had a sign that said, protest is the new brunch, which was this idea that, hey, instead of instead of going to brunch, we're, we're at a protest every week. But it also made me think that, actually, brunch can be an act of protest. When we choose where we eat, when we choose what types of food systems we endorse, that's that's a way of markedly making a difference. And so while it's really important to volunteer, and I think philanthropic giving, even if it's just a little bit, is enormously influential, I also am really proud of the for-profit companies who have chosen to stand beside us, or the people who've chosen to host rehearsal dinners for their weddings, first birthday parties, or just literally brunch at our restaurant, that's making a clear statement about where your values are, and things like that integrated into your everyday life, I think, can have a tremendous amount of change.
4: Alex, as someone who was in this industry already, you know, why do you think it's been so embraced so far, and why do you think that this this project works?
6: Um, I Especially in our area, I think there are a lot of people that are, are interested in, are, are like-minded, um, and are interested in supporting this cause.
4: And, and can you talk a little bit about what the response has been from the industry and how, how they've responded to the trainees that have come out of your program?
6: Long story short, fairly positive, <laughs> you know, in that uh, the relationships that we have with uh, people in the industry is where we've been sending a lot of our graduating students and the students have gone on to, you know, have some pretty good success in the restaurants that they're working in. And because of the, the concepts that they've taken on to, because of the tools that they've been able to understand how to use, or that they've been uh, given from the partners that we have, the restaurants that they've gone on to have seen, okay, they are all serious about what they're doing. They have a defined path in which they, you know, see themselves moving and they're uh, a valuable asset for us, you know, in our restaurants. So mm-hmm. that's been, you know, that's been one of our prouder moments to see, you know, our students graduate and go on and actually become the passionate line cooks, you know, that we've hoped they would go on to become.
4: Mm-hmm. And Carrie, you said that pretty much everyone who's graduated has has been placed right into a job. We've been really fortunate that all of our students who have
5: sought jobs in the culinary industry have been able to find them. Mm-hmm. We have students who graduate and realize, actually, you're the first people to ask us what we want to do. And maybe, maybe I need to think about that a bit. And I think that sometimes that's where the humility comes in, where I'm the one who's like, no, I will tell you what to do and you will do it. <laughs> and People keep telling me that that's just not how the world works, so I shouldn't do that. And so I think that we're sometimes most proud when our students maybe take a step back and do take the time to decide, actually, what I want to do is X. Or a student might get a job offer and realize that actually this kitchen isn't the right environment for me. It's not conducive to my my whole self being happy. I'm not being paid as I think I should be. And I think that those moments are moments of pride because more than a workforce development program, we're an empowerment program with a high focus on independence. So we're really proud of our students and what they've gone on to achieve and how
4: they continue to live their lives. Can you talk to me a little bit about how the menus are developed? Because I know you've got one kind of set menu for the restaurant. How did you put that menu together?
6: So the menu was pieced together through two basic things. Mm cooking American food, because this is the food that I see myself cooking in this restaurant, and teaching techniques, right? So every, for the most part, every item has a, a teaching tool kind of built into it, mm-hmm. right? So we braise a brisket, right? The only reason we have the brisket on the menu is so that we can teach the students that technique. This is how you braise. And so you follow that, you know, follow that thread down the line on the menu. Okay, our lamb shank is roasted. This is how you properly roast a lamb shank. Um, And then the commonalities between the two of them. Okay, so you have to season them. You have to make a spice rub, you know, and so on and so forth. The one thing that I try to uh, instill in the students is that cooking is cooking no matter which area you are in the kitchen, no matter if you're making something that's hot or cold or room temperature, I think one of the biggest things that they have to learn in order to execute any of the dishes is patience. Mm -hmm. Patience is the big thing.
5: It's always interesting to me that we start the conversation with our students about what they want to cook. And sometimes that's a really tough one because it's not as though our students are coming in with, you know, here's my cookbook from home. This is what I want to cook. And this idea of choice and wanting is something that we actually talk about a lot with our students. And so sometimes it takes a long time to develop that trust and that relationship for them to feel like they can offer ideas or even offer skill sets. I'm always, I remember twice now we've had students who Alex will show them how to do something and they struggle with it. And then Alex walks away and suddenly we see that they're fabricating fish perfectly because they don't realize all the time that actually the skills that they bring from home do have a place here and that they should have confidence in those skills. And so that's why in our menu, we do emphasize those fundamental cooking techniques, recognizing that for many of our students, maybe one day it's owning their own restaurant or company. But right now it's focusing on getting a job to
4: continue to develop those skills and then to infuse it with their own creativity.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: And it it seems interesting, too, because I think a lot of times in this country, when we're talking about refugees, it's just a question of survival, really. And like, And, and, you know, when you've gone through the sort of trauma, that's sort of what you're focused on. But what you're doing is kind of, you know, it's like now, okay, like, let's, let's see what you actually want to do and what makes you happy. And I mean, can you talk about sort of that experience? And like, I feel like for a lot of times, it might be the first time someone's been asked that question in a long time.
5: It is. It's interesting. We're very fortunate to work with a number of refugee resettlement agencies and homeless shelters, and they help us with some of that sensitivity training and making sure that we're fostering a safe space. But we also have a really high emphasis on independence. And so for us, when our students walk through that door, Sometimes it, it frustrates reporters because they'll ask us, you know, what did X person go through before they got here? And my answer will be, well, I think they took the F subway. But other than that, I, I really can't tell you because it's none of my business and it's no nobody's business. It's it's about what our students want to, to bring with them and what they want to show of themselves. And so we don't ask our students to talk about what they've been through. We ask our students to talk about what they want to do. Awesome.
4: Well, thank you guys so much for coming in. This was awesome. and so good to talk to you. And um, everyone go to Emma's Torch if you're ever in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn.
5: Thank you for having us. We look Thank forward you. to seeing you there.
4: <laughs> the Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che, and produced and edited by Emma Wortsman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wortsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell
5: us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.